So, do you come to Milwaukee often? Well, I'm a regular visitor here, but Milwaukee has certainly had its share of visitors. The French missionaries and explorers were coming here as early as the late 1600s to trade with the Native Americans. In fact, isn't Milwaukee an Indian name? Yes, Pete, it is. Actually, it's pronounced Miliwake, which is Algonquin for the good land. I was not aware of that. I think one of the most interesting aspects of Milwaukee is the fact that it's the only major American city to have ever elected three socialist mayors. Does this guy know how to party or what? Huh? Huh? Oh. Okay. Well, we gotta get going. No, no, no. Stick around. Hang out with us. Cool. Yeah, we'll stay and hang around with you. With Alice Cooper. We're not worthy! We're not worthy! We're not worthy! Get you some facts right here. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Song Facts Podcast. I am your host, Corey O'Flanagan, and what you just heard was a bit from one of my favorite childhood movies, Wayne's World, featuring the subject of our show today, Alice Cooper. As always, this show is a part of the Pantheon Music Podcast Network. Today's guest is Gary Graff, who is the author of Alice Cooper at 75, a new book that is currently available for your purchase. Gary's in-depth research gives us 75 different tales and events that happened to Alice Cooper, the man, and the band. It covers his early beginnings, time spent in L.A. in the mid to late 60s, the skyrocket successes of the early 70s, as well as the long and enduring career that has followed. Gary and I go over a few songs, including I'm 18 and No More Mr. Nice Guy, as well as chat about the different eras of the band. Gary's book is a must-read for anyone interested in Alice Cooper, or even just the era the band came out of. As Gary tells us, the music industry was much smaller then, and the book does a great job of showing us all the different people and bands that were intertwined with Alice Cooper through the years. So get the book, but before you do... Please enjoy this conversation with Gary Graff. Gary Graff, thank you so much for coming on to the Song Facts podcast. So this will be a little bit different than the one that we were just talking about that you did with Eric, where I'm going to kind of, I want to talk about specific songs and I've chosen one that's kind of what introduced me to Alex or to um, Alice. And then the other ones are, I don't know, as I was reading your book, I just found to have compelling stories that I thought we could share here. So First of all, though, you previously wrote a book on Bruce Springsteen, which now, after reading this one, um, Alice Cooper at 75, I'm very much intrigued by it. It's kind of like the A to Z Springsteen book. Yeah, we, That's... we called it a, a Bruce Springsteen A to E to Z. We worked, uh, worked the E Street Band, and that, that one's more of an encyclopedia uh, type of book, but it was, you know, but it was hugely retrospective and in some ways similar to the Alice Cooper book, you know, you were picking specific events. I wasn't events or uh, moments in his career, Springsteen's career. I wasn't limited to 75 like I was with with the Alice Cooper book. 
but yeah. it but it had a very similar kind of approach. What is it? Is there something about the traditional rock biography or biography in general that you aren't a fan of that has you kind of doing it in your own way? I'm not not a fan. I think I've just had the opportunities to do these other kind of uh, rock and roll biographies, like the encyclopedic approach to Springsteen, the more photographic approach to Bob Seger, um, in this case of Alice Cooper, the something geared to his age. Uh, this book, the Alice Cooper book, hopefully works in that. And I call it, and I've called it in every interview, so sorry for the repetition, but I call it a needle drop kind of book where you can stick your finger into any page, flip it open, and there's a nice, nice self-contained chapter yeah. that you can read and have an experience with. But if you do read it front to back, soup to nuts, it does read like a linear biography. Well, that's how I read it. And like the way that I compare that is like, I love the U.S. sitcom The Office. And I can mm -hmm. literally just, if I need to kill 25 minutes, I can go literally any season, drop into an episode and I'm there. Um, and so I guess I kind of like that idea of it. It's like, well, I just want to read about what was going on with Alice in 1978 and try and drop the needle and find that. I, I think that's a really good perspective of it. Um, what was it about Alice Cooper that you were like, after the Springsteen book, you said, I'm going to take on this as my next kind of musical subject? Yeah, well, there were actually a couple, three books after Springsteen. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, there was a Neil Young um, and Rock and Roll Miss that I both of which I did with my uh, brother from another mother colleague, Dan Durkles, okay. in Seattle. And there was a Bob Seeger book uh, that I did in conjunction with his former tour manager and photographer, album another designer. Detroiter. He's in Detroit, yeah. And then what happened with the Alice Cooper book was this is the third book I've done for this publisher. Mm -hmm. And they were starting this At 75 series. Uh, they did, uh, they did uh, David Bowie first, Elton John, and then Alice Cooper. Okay. And for Alice Cooper, they called me up and they said, hey, we know, you know, you're you're tight with Alice. You've reported on him for a long time. You know, we think you'd be the right guy for this book. Would you like to do it? And, you know, hell yeah. Yeah, uh, that's, a, you know, an, an easy fit I'm right here in in Detroit, which is Alice Cooper Ground Zero, uh, since he was born here and really started the successful portion of his career here. So it was just, yeah, yeah, of course. I was, I, there was no, there wasn't a second thought in saying yes to that. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, so like you said, if you read the book front to back, it's going to have this linear narrative to you. And I've found the part, I have an endless fascination with the late 60s and the musical scene going mm -hmm. on there. And that's one of the reasons that I do this because I've gotten the opportunity to talk to some people that came out of this. I just talked to Colin Blundstone of the zombies oh, yeah. a few weeks ago and they're, they have an incredible story, but I didn't quite know that Alice Cooper, the band, and obviously that what became the individual had been in that scene in that mid to late sixties, LA. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't even, I mean, I guess they were kind of part of Laurel Canyon and all these well, other things that were going on. Yeah, Laurel Canyon, Sunset Strip, you know, which was where they were playing. Uh, yep. That's where they gravitated. They went to from Phoenix um, and they moved there. They were the Spiders. Then they became the Naz. Then Todd Rundgren had a hit with the Todd Rundgren Naz had a hit with Open My Eyes. And all of a sudden they had to change their name and, <laughs> and came up with Alice Cooper. But no, they were working the psychedelic rock scene on the Sunset Strip. They were contemporaries and friends with The Doors and Jimi Hendrix and 
Janis Joplin and the Chambers Brothers. And, you know, they were straddling that psychedelic acid rock scene, very psychedelic. The Alice Cooper that was playing in those clubs and recorded those first two albums for Frank Zappa, there's very little similarity with the Alice Cooper we came to know and love with I'm 18 and love it to death. That what do you fat- think was the biggest change? Well, they learned, they they moved out of L.A. Um, and then they hooked up with a producer in Bob Ezrin who taught both taught and challenged them to write better songs and to record better records. Um, he was he was charged with making them a, a sellable act. Yeah. You know, making them an act that radio would play, that people would come out and see everybody's fascination with the early L.A. era Alice Cooper, whether it was Shep Gordon, their manager, or Frank Zappa was, we went to see him at this club, and five minutes in, everybody walked out. I figured there gotta be, there's got to be something yeah. to this. <laughs> you know, they basically, it was like, okay, if everybody hates him, there's got to be something. Here, where Bob Ezrin, circa 1970, back in Detroit, was, now we're going to make records that people like, and hmm. we're going to make, and that radio will play, and we're going to make you a band that that people that people will like you know he really took them to boot camp do you think that they would have had their commercial success had they stayed in la probably not um you know you can never say never you know maybe they the right producer would have found them in la so lord knows there were enough of them in la but frank zappa didn't care about making them a commercial act and you know i don't and and by the time those two Zappa records happened, you know, Warner Brothers Records was ready to dump them. And they were already pretty soil goods. You know, they were affectionately known as the worst band in L.A. Yeah. <laughs> but nobody's going to sign. That's not the kind of thing that gets you signed. It's such an interesting thing to me because I being such an amazing draw live is like obviously at that time you wanted the appeal of selling records that was what you had to do now you make your money as a musician playing live right um and selling t-shirts yeah merchandise and all that kind of stuff but the only thing happening at that time is my what happens to be my favorite band the grateful dead who was like we're not we don't care about the studio we're just going to tour 320 days out of the year and we're just going to make it happen on the road it seems like alice and company could have made that happen because they were such a great live draw, but then they also were like, they got someone in the studio with them that says, no, there's hits in here. And what seems to be interesting to me is that a lot of these songs that Bob, um, I've got it written. Yeah, he's got it. So he heard these, these songs were written. The, there was little bits of pieces in there that he was hearing. And he was like, you guys have something here. We just need to polish it. And I'm just, like, especially with I'm 18, you kind of talk about that story in the book. wondering if you can talk about the origins of that song and does that kind of bridge the gap between psychedelic rock to like now we're this more polished is that a good example of it because that was like a seven eight minute little psychedelic anthem oh, before see, it the, got 
it was even longer than that. I think it was 15, 16, 18 minutes long and somewhere. So Bob Ezrin, who interestingly had been, had just started working at Nimbus 9 Productions Studios in Toronto for Jack Richardson, the producer mm -hmm. that Shep Gordon and Alice wanted to produce the Alice, wanted to produce the Alice Cooper band. Um, Richardson was like, they, they liked what Richardson did with the Guess Who. Um, Richardson heard heard him and was like, there's no way. And he sent Bob Ezrin, who had started work at Nimbus 9 literally the day of that day when Alice and Shep were in the lobby. And his first assignment was to get rid of these guys. <laughs> Tell them we're not interested. Instead, they charmed him into coming to see them at Max's Kansas City in New York. I think it was a couple of weeks later. So, you know, Ezrin, Ezrin, who's looking to make his mark, he's looking for his band yeah. at this point. So he's like, what do I have to lose? He goes to New York and within this long psychedelic jam, he hears the root of I'm 18. The riff was there. Some of the melody was there. He thought it was called I'm edgy. He didn't understand what Alice <laughs> was singing. So when he uh, comes to Detroit or more specifically Pontiac, Michigan, uh, to work with these guys, after they had moved, you know, to, to, to after they had moved back there to Alice's hometown, he was like, "Okay, we're gonna, you know, basically we're gonna treat this like, like you find a diamond. You know, here's this great big rock, and we're gonna chisel at it until we find the diamond in there. Here's your diamond, and it's this song that became I'm 18." Now, the the I think the best part of that story is that this place in Pontiac, Michigan, this this farm essentially that they rented was next door neighbors to an a, uh, insane, a mental, like a mental a, institute, a mental health institute who yeah. was their live feedback. These guys yeah. outside on break, almost like prison hours, like giving them approval they, or not approval on stand the songs by, that they would stand by the fence and listen to them because uh, they were rehearsing you know, working on the songs in a barn and they had the doors thrown open and the, the you know, window of the hayloft thrown open. And, you know, how appropriate was it that Alice Cooper's test market would be the residence of an asylum next door? <laughs> exactly. right? You know, it, you couldn't have asked for better. And that had some influence on uh, the ballad of Dwight Fry. Yeah. You know, that, you know, that was that was part of the story of that song. But, yeah, it's great. You know, neither of those places are there anymore. The properties are. But the play, the places themselves are gone. Can we touch on the differences in the scene at this time, 1970, 71, between L.A. and um, Detroit and why maybe they were able to find their sound and their comfort or whatever, whatever it was that they found to get these next few years of extreme success that they may not have gotten in L.A.? Like, was there just a completely different energy in Detroit at the time? Absolutely. And that's very well put that the energy in the scene was completely different. LA, California in general was, you know, there were still a lot of the vestiges of the peace and love, uh, the counterculture, the hippie movement. Um, you come back to Detroit and it was kick out of the kick out the jams, mother, you know what? Um, yeah. From the MC5, it was Iggy and the Stooges. It was the Frost. It was uh, Bob Seeger and the Last Herd, or the Bob Seeger system. It was Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. It was these hard, blue-collar, heavy, you know, kick out the jams was not just a song title. It was the ethos. It's what the Detroit fans said to any band that came from out of town, basically. You get up there, you kick out the jams. You don't, we're going to ride you out of town. <laughs> Bleeding. 
and that fit Alice Cooper better. You know, they were they were at their heart a hard rock band, and they definitely under you know they definitely gravitated to the hard rock world. Yeah, they came from the Yardbirds and the Rolling Stones and the Animals, yeah. and even more than they did from the Beatles. You know, the Kinks, the Who, that those were the rock and roll roots of Alice Cooper, and the the stagecraft, the psychedelic. Uh, came from more from the visual art world, you know, from Salvador Dali and the Surrealists and Dadaism and everything. But the music was rooted in hard rock. So they were a much better fit at the Grandy Ballroom and the East Town Theater and all those places in Detroit uh, that liked them. You know, I've talked to, uh, through reporting the book and even in years prior, I've talked to Iggy, Iggy and, you know, guys from the MC5 and they were saying, yeah, these guys came from out of town we didn't know what to make of them and we went to see them and they they kicked ass and you know so they were they were embraced by the scene here uh, yeah i mean that there's such when you really start labeling and you start listing out the um the acts that were coming out of detroit at that time because i guess the motown heyday was a few years before they got there so the vibe was really kind of changing in detroit and they just kind of came in right at the right time for people to be open to what they were doing it's instructive that it took the Grateful Dead decades to find an audience in Detroit. That was not a, that was not Detroit music. No. And they, they would come to town, they played the Grandy and other places, but it really wasn't until the 80s that they were embraced in a meaningful way in this area. And even a lot of that was because of the travelers. Yeah. You know, who just Detroit was another stop on the way. So they'd help sell out the shows that the Detroiters weren't buying tickets for. Detroit wanted red meat yeah, in its rock and roll. And, you know, that that was what Alice Cooper was capable of serving up. Yeah. And Detroit likes a little bit of blood. So if you're going to cut your head off on stage, more power to you. <laughs> Yeah, that, that those sage stories that are in the book, and and I just want to say to anyone listening, Alice Cooper at seventy is the book. It's just this 75. beautiful at seventy five is this beautiful, just hardcover in a nice sleeve. It's just one of the best books that I've received from doing this show that I've been able to read. Just the presentation of it, I just absolutely love. Was that? They, was that something that you guys insisted on? Well, they do. This press, this publisher, does wonderful looking books uh they really do and they they did ratchet it up a notch for the at 75 series but you know it's it's the same issue that's facing the music world now you know in a world of where people are streaming more and they're not consuming the physical product you have to create a literally a hands-on experience whether it's books or music that you can't get from kindle or you can't get from spotify or or iTunes or anything like that. So you're seeing that's why you're seeing the proliferation of box sets from the music world, these gorgeously produced keepsakes, you know, that are really an experience to have in your hands. Same with the books, you know, yeah. where in the case of the Alice Cooper at 75 book, you know, you have a freaking black velvet, black light poster cover. There's a funny <laughs> story. Uh, the I was visiting my uh, daughter and granddaughter out of town when my when my advanced copy came in and i was calling you know talking to my partner that night on the phone and it occurred to me it should be coming soon i said it's one of those one of those packages from motor books she said yeah and i said uh well, we'll open it you, you sure yeah open it 
And then there's a pause and I hear, ooh, and she, I, I can tell she's, you know, running her hand over the black velvet cover. It's like, put it down now, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> Don't uh, get no, just, on it. <laughs> but, you know, this publisher and many publishers now are trying to create books as experiences, physical experiences. So you'll want to have them in your hands and not just read it on a Kindle. Yeah, there's a difference there. I mean, it was we had a couple of uh, funny moments with my as I'm reading the book over the last few weeks, and um, I'll read it while I'm in bed, and my wife's on the other side of the bed reading her Kindle, and then I'm just like here with this massive book in front of me, and she just look over and giggle a little bit, and I'm like, you know what though, I have these beautiful photos which you've done a great job of helping tell the story with of finding these old photos that you included in there. It's just it's really well done and, and well put together. So good job on mm-hmm. that. Thank you. Um, you did a couple, so we have early 70s, really up until seven, an amazing stretch of music from 1970, really to like 73, 74, maybe even a little bit later than that. But I'm curious about the story behind um, the hit No More Mr. Nice Guy. Um, you know, so that was a, you know, Mike, Michael Bruce, guitarist, this is Alice's primary co-songwriter, his Keith Richards, if you will, came up with a, you know, came up with a riff, kind of a Stonesy riff. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, Ezrin liked it. And, you know, it was developed into a song, was handed to Alice to put some lyrics on it. And, you know, Alice decided to write about Alice and the Alice Cooper, the experience of being Alice Cooper at that time when he was public enemy number one to the mainstream adult world, the, the um, story. Because you know, of his stage antics. Yeah, well, right. Yeah. This time, you know, let's remember this. He is, uh, he's hacking up baby dolls. He's hanging himself. He's, he's chopping his head off. He's singing about like, necrophilia. He's, mm-hmm. you know, he's singing about mass murderers, um, insane people, uh, you know, he's, and so that didn't go over well with a mainstream audience, although we'll, we'll get back to interestingly where it did go over well with, but, you know, so in the case of no more, Mr. Nice guy, that, that third verse, you know, um, about his mom and dad, you know, being shunned because of him being a son about being, he wasn't really punched in the nose by a reverend, but, you know, he, you know, he took a little dramatic license there, but you know, that is Alice singing about the experience of being Alice Cooper in 1972, 73. And it's a great song. Yeah. It was like my gateway. It, it wasn't my total gateway song, but it was the first record I owned. I bought the 45 and I had I had to sneak it in the house. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't show it to mom and dad that I had bought an Alice Cooper record. So the mom and dad know about Alice oh, yeah. at this time? Because this is your, your teenage at this point. Yeah, right. right. I'm young, adolescent even at this point. Um, I would have been 12 when that song came out. So... Uh, so, yeah, you know, Alice Cooper was, you know, he was a, a joke. He was reviled, but also kind of a joke. And, you know, you know, my straight laced family, even my brother, who was a hippie, you know, and was really my entree to the music world. Uh, he was 11 and a half years older than I was. So, you oh, know, wow. so through him, I heard all the good stuff. 
you know, the Beatles, the Stones, and go from there. Uh, Motown and everything. But he and his generation hated Alice Cooper. You know, Alice likes to say we were the stake in the heart of the love generation. Yeah. And but that <laughs> was a good line. But that was where my generation, kids of my age could find our identity in music. It was one thing to like your older siblings band. That was great bands. You know, that was great. And those that was great music. But what's going to be mine? And mine alone. And Alice Cooper comes along and, okay, my parents hate it. My older brother hates it. I'm in. You know, yeah. give it to me. This will this will be this will be mine. Um, interestingly, if I can keep riffing here, because I because I hinted at it. So the the folks who got Alice, you know, besides the kids of the time, besides his fans, were these guys in the Friars Club. Jack Benny and Dean Martin and George Burns and Milton Berle. And even Frank Sinatra, they understood. Here they are, these mainstream, straight-laced-ish performers. They understood that what Alice Cooper was doing was the 1970s incarnate of the vaudeville that they came yeah. up doing. They knew it was a vaudeville act. They knew where it came from. They understood it. Alice has told me on number, a number of occasions, George Burns used to say to him, yeah, you know, me and Gracie were out there in you know, 1923 and there was this guy who had a guillotine and he cut his head off. Yeah, it's great. And uh, <laughs> they made him a member of the Friars Club. They all wore tuxedos. Alice wore a leather jacket, but they loved yeah. <laughs> They loved him and they loved what he did. So it's so crazy to me. You know, it's, it's just so ironic and fascinating that the entertainers my parents loved, loved Alice Cooper, this guy they would never you know think twice about even listening to and didn't even like yeah. to look at stay tuned for more song facts podcast right after this hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price and yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Get your song back right here. 
if you had any preconceived notions, I mean, obviously it sounds like you have a long history of um, covering Alice. And so you probably had a lot of these ideas. But when you get into this kind of extensive research for a book and you're talking to people and starting to fill the gaps within the story, a lot of times I'm finding as I'm talking to authors, they start having things change in their head throughout the process. And I find it really interesting, this change that Alice went through. His name's not Alice. That's not his real name. And I think a lot of people are surprised to hear that. But do you, like, when he was going through this, like, this is a performance that he has on stage, but the art and the life start to combine and find, I think he really must have started to find it really hard to separate. And I'm just wondering if you can talk on that at all and if you discovered anything that you didn't know beforehand. Hey, what's interesting in the book is there wasn't anything I didn't know. There were maybe some things I remembered that I had forgotten. But Mm -hmm. so I've been talking to Alice at least once a year and often more every year since 1986. Okay. So there weren't, you know, I kind of had the story. And he's done a great job of telling the story himself, you know, whether it was the super duper Alice Cooper documentary or the Alice Cooper golf monster book. Yeah. You know, he's been kind of an open book, if you will, uh, himself. But it is a fascinating period where, first of all, he wasn't even supposed to be Alice Cooper. That was the band name. But, you know, Captain Obvious, eventually everyone's going to think the singer's name is Alice. As 100%. the song says, it happened. Everybody thinks Ian Anderson is Jethro Tull. Um, everybody thinks Darius Rucker is named Hootie. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's just what that's just what's going to happen. But yeah, Alice, I think the first step in Vincent Fernier becoming Alice Cooper was that he became Alice Cooper 24-7. And even if, no, those hours off the stage, he was not walking around the world hacking up live, real babies. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he was drinking and heavily and, you know, he was living a lot of rock star life and, you know, it caught up it, if, you know, he's told the story very well himself, but it caught up to him uh, by the early eighties and he, he near nearly killed himself. Um, drinking led to, he went through two rehabs and after the second rehab, he got into cocaine. And that's what that's God, he what, was a late entry. Into he was then. he was blame Bernie, Bernie Toppin, uh, who wrote the from the inside album with Alice and kind of introduced him to the drug back then. And, uh, you know, it really took a lot of things happening. His wife leaving him, Shep Gordon walking away from him, essentially saying, if you're going to kill yourself, I don't want any part of it. Love you. But yeah. and Alice to his to the credit, to his credit and to the credit of his character being able to realize all by himself that he was in trouble and didn't want to be that anymore and took himself home literally to his parents back in Phoenix and got into the rehab that stuck. And he's now learned, you know, and what came out of that was learning that, you know, there Alice Cooper, the character is alive and well for 80, 90 minutes a day, you know, whenever he's playing on stage and the other 22 and a half hours of that day and the 24 hours of every other day he alice cooper the man is a significantly different uh type of person and and i argue that the alice cooper that's on stage now is even more ferocious than the alice cooper of the 70s 
Yeah, because he knows he's just going into it for this small act. That's he's unleashed from his cage and he's in the cage or the box, you know, or seclusion for so long between those times that when he bursts out, he is he is just, you know, ready to go. And I think that's why there are more injuries in the Alice Cooper band now than there were back in the 70s. Because, you know, the madman, the madman is out there and he's. He's swinging his sword around and doing whatever else. And if you're not careful as a musician. <laughs> I think this idea of him being like finding the way to separate stage Alice versus my day to day, my regular life, Alice, is really encapsulated nicely in what you kind of touched on earlier, Wayne's World, which is my introduction to Alice Cooper. So last question that I have is kind of going to be in two parts here, but... I love that part in the movie when Alice is railing off all those facts about Milwaukee. Milwaukee. And Wayne is just like, does this guy know how to party or what? Just unbelievable stuff there. And that's like a clear example of like the separation. And then like the next shot in the movie is him like out on stage in front of the camera, like whipping and, and it just, it really shows like backstage. He's just like rattling off all these amazing facts about Milwaukee. And then, um, and then he gets on stage and, and gets into his persona. So what you're talking about is like clearly there in this film in just like a couple of scenes. Um, the song that they play in that one. Fascinating story that I realized um, through the book and just kind of doing some of my research on my own. Feed My Frankenstein. Bring you to a It was on the album Hey Stupid, this incredible cast of people from that era and before and now kind of later that played on that album and that song. Um, What can you tell me about Feed My Frankenstein and then just kind of the resurgence that that song, that album, being in that movie kind of provided for Alice? So you had Alice at the time coming off of one of his greatest career successes, which was Trash and the song Poison. And he mm-hmm. wanted to reestablish the hard rock, the really heavy rock, a little bit more, but yet still have have some commercial appeal. So you had the song Hey Stupid, you know, which was which was an, another, you know, kind of a goofy uh, single type of song. But much of the rest of the album really was, you know, Alice, uh, Alice trying to crank up the hard rock again. And Feed My Frankenstein came along. It was one of these teen-written songs. It was Alice, of course, mostly lyrically. Uh, but you had Mark An- Manning and Ian Richardson, um, Nick Kohler doing the song. And you had Mickey Curry, who was Holland Oates drummer, uh, Joe Satriani and Steve Vai on guitar, and Nikki Six on bass. Um, Just incredible. And those people, are they're all <laughs> over the album. The album, like you said, has this great collection of really, really notable hard rock players. And, yeah. you know, they came up with it, you know, it's a great groove rock, you know, song. And, uh, you know, it. but it still had that, it still had a hook. It still had some commercial tightness to it. It had that 80s rolling into the early 90s production, you know, where everything was big and up front. 
And that was really, you know, you know, that was uh, it was a great selling point. It was originally um, done for by this band Zodiac Mind Warp, who was, okay. uh, you know, British hard rock band and it was that formal title zodiac mind warp and the love reaction uh, kind of one of the one of the <laughs> lost bands in rock and roll history and uh I, i'm not sure if it was necessarily uh, you know an a and r rep who found it or you know somebody in alice's camp who found it for them but you know they they changed it around and they made it an alice cooper song and you know and i i'd, I'd advise going to uh listen to zodiac mind warp early on or you know at some point because yeah. they were there a uh, that's a that's a good band um, and i remember seeing them touring with uh when guns and roses was first out in the cult but so you oh, know really back on the what the 86 tour for yeah, that would have been the, uh, yeah when they were uh, you know they were on this package with like five or six other bands and you know they started as the opening act and you know it was like three weeks into the tour they had to make them the headliner yeah the last thing that I wanted to touch on was um, the use of, and this was kind of more talking about um, the producer that they that he had. I keep forgetting oh, the name. Ezrin? I have it written down. Bob Ezrin. Yeah, sorry. And like, so for um, School's Out, it brings in the children choir. Eight years later, does the same thing for Pink Floyd. Floyd. on the wall. And so this was just kind of a theme that he had. He kind of liked having these really like lyrics and this mood of the song that's going to be anti-establishment, but then kind of bring in children to just kind of bring you back to center a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you know, Bob Ezrin as a as a record producer is is almost like a movie director. He hears he hears the soundscape. He doesn't he yeah. doesn't just hear the song or the record. He hears a, an entire experience. And uh, so you know he did use it with Schools Out because it fit. You know, you know, it's a song about school. Uh, wouldn't it be fun to have this children's choir uh, do it? And then he he did hear the thematic similarity in another brick in the wall part two. So worked once. Let's do it again. Let's go to the school that's down the street from the studio here in London, and uh, bring these kids into the studio and record them. And you know, yeah. interestingly, Alice in his live performance. You know, he breaks into another brick in the wall part two, into the the chorus. We don't need no education. Um, he he inserts that into his own song. You know, to kind of hammer the point home. I have never heard Pink Floyd play any of Schools Out, or in you know during <laughs> another brick in the wall. Well, there's still time. Yeah. Um, Actually, Gary with Pink Graf Floyd, there may not be. Yeah, that's true. That's true. They're kind of separated right now. I did get to talk to uh, Nick Mason last oh, year, which was he's a he's incredible. a lovely guy. Yeah, it was bit, really great. A little bit tight, you know. You're not going to get a lot of juice out of their their proper Brits. Yeah. You know, and they have a great history with um, Alice too, Pink Floyd. That was one of the fun things to write about in the book. Is you know when they came over in 1967 and lived in the same house with the Alice Cooper band, and Alice ta yeah, Alice sure. talks about sitting at breakfast with. Uh, with Sid Barrett and Sid thinks his cornflakes are singing and dancing in front of him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Pink Floyd dosed the Alice Cooper band once before they went on stage and yeah. they played a lot of poker together. There's, there's a really nice history between the, between those two bands. You did because one of the things that's, that I didn't realize until I got into the book was how part of that scene that I'm such a fan of from like the mid sixties to the mid seventies, of the music that came out of that time 
and just how intertwined they were with all of it. I mean, you touched on it earlier where they were, you know, in the same circles as Hendrix and Joplin and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But it's just very, it continues on. I mean, there's even that part of the book where you talk about Alice being interviewed and then just like on a couch behind him is Ozzy early on in his career. And just this idea of Alice being asked these ridiculous questions that 10 years down the road are going to be brought on to Ozzy. Sure. It's, uh, it's funny how we don't, because the, because the music world is so large now, we forget what a small town it was back. Comparatively, there weren't that many bands and they all knew each other. They were all running the same circuit. They were all bumping into each other. You know, they all knew each other. You hear uh, Shep Gordon, talk about the scene at the motel where he met Hendrix, met and sold drugs to Hendrix and everybody. And, you know, Janis Joplin and met the Chambers brothers who said you should manage these guys, Alice Cooper. Um, it was such a small town. No, I just absolutely love it all. Um, Gary Graff, thank you so much. Anyone listening, the book is Alice Cooper at 75. It's out now. Get it, read it, then put it on your shelf. It's beautiful. It'll really complement anything else you have up there. And um, I can't wait for the next one. Uh, uh, me too. But uh, thank you so much for having me and for, for one of the best interviews I've done for the project so far. Thank you so much to Gary for those high words of praise, as well as for giving me a little bit of time and coming on and chatting about Alice Cooper and his book, Alice Cooper at 75. Highly recommend you go and check this one out. And as always, for the stories behind the songs, go to songfacts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.